Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, and this episode is sponsored by SSE, proud to be a principal partner of COP26. SSE is building the world's largest offshore wind farm at Dogger Bank, which when complete in 2026 will bring clean, renewable energy to over 6 million homes across the UK. Powering change for a better world of energy... SSE. Now, here's today's episode of Redbox. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley at the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival. Oh, posh. Uh, coming up on today's episode, because we're in Cheltenham, it's just up the road, only two and a half miles up the road is GCHQ, the government's secret listening post. So we're talking spies. We're going to hear from the GCHQ historian and uh, David Omer, who used to run GCHQ. Also, guess who popped into my tent? It's only Ed Balls. We talked politics, we talked food, and, of course, who he thinks is going to win Strictly. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, today's panel, picking over the news. We didn't really discuss the news at all. We just had a good old gossip. It was lovely. Uh, Deputy Property Editor of the Times of the Sunday Times, uh, Carol Lewis, and Times reporter, Jack Mulvan. Um, uh, explain what you're here. You've already done an event. You were up and early this morning. Up yeah, early this morning. I have been woken up at, at 3 a.m. I was then for a 7.30 sound check at the Daffodil. Uh, we've had a breakfast meeting called uh, The City and COVID. Uh, it, it was broad ranging. We, we talked. It was the, the money editor, the business editor, myself and Satnam. And we talked all around what changes COVID has brought. Um, we talked about property, how people moved out of the city into the country, to the coastal regions, which we've talked about a lot. But what's happened lately is a reversal of that. We've oh, seen really? a surge in demand for rentals uh, as students and tourists start coming back as travel restrictions ease. And we've also seen demand rent, both rental and buying for pied de terres, people who moved out to places like this and further afield who've suddenly realised they're going to have to come back into the office three days a week and whoops, <laughs> yeah, we've spent all our money on a, on a house out in the country. Uh, so we talked about that. We talked about um, some of the trends that will endure. Um, we thought hybrid working would stay, not total home working, but you probably get to work one or two days a week from home. Uh, and that would mean a greater emphasis on computer security, better broadband, or, or that sort of thing. Um, greater digitization of things like legal processes. Um, we saw that with a property market boom, conveyances struggled. Um, 
so we could, could see advances there. So we thought companies that dealt in that Does would that do well. Does that mean the laborious process of moving a house might finally end the 20th century? God, that would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be really, really good. I mean, all the innovation is out there. We just need to get it in place. Uh, I think this will force the issue. It's really highlighted some of the problems. I mean, I mean there are plenty of them as well. So, yes, we thought that was good. Uh, the other thing we talked about was healthcare. Uh, and digitization of healthcare. And I, and I know you were at the Tory Party conference. We were, talk we were talking about um, home testing. And there was a company at the Tory Party conference, which for people who don't go to party political conferences, is, is a very strange affair where the middle section is a huge trade fair where yeah. you can buy tinned fish and, and knitted <laughs> dogs and things, which is slightly odd. But in the middle there was a huge stand for something called Circle Health Pod. Did you look at this, man? No, I, I completely missed that. I and was it, too busy going off to buy a, a knitted baby glow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, a, it was a, a device that sits, and you can put it in your pocket, but it's for employers so that they can test you for COVID, uh, like a PCR test, and they can monitor their staff. And I thought, oh, I'll have a look at this. And I looked online last night, and it said, coming soon, flu and STDs. Wow. Would you want your employer to know? So, what do you, so it'd be like a, every day when you went into the office, they would what, they'd swab you from head to toe? What on earth's going on there? I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, I think, I think remote diagnostics and healthcare, that, also, that will take off. Also, um, uh, uh, flu and COVID, that is a thing that you could catch around the office. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It, while going about your professional business. Yes, the, the other one, less so. Less so. Yes. Less so. How do you feel about that, Jack? Is that coming, <laughs> do you think that's coming to the news building? Those Christmas parties will be a lot safer, won't they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we're allowed to talk about Christmas parties <laughs> in our building. Um, uh, that's, it is interesting, though, that whole idea of, of people who got really carried away last year, Carol, and bought, bought places. Mm. Thought, great, I'm going to be working from home forever. Yes, and that's yes. not that's not happening. And it'll only and take me four that? hours from wherever to get in the one day a month I come in, and suddenly the employer's gone three days a week minimum. So what's that doing to prices? Because we've talked endlessly for the last eighteen months about the insanity <laughs> of the the economy was crashing, and yet house prices were booming. But in part because of the stamp duty, uh, yeah, um, cheap money, interest cheap money, rates were low. Exactly. Yeah. What's going on? Does that mean that some of the more far flung places prices aren't? Booming as much? Of, uh, yeah, are the price of flats going up again in London? What's, what's sort of going on? Not yet. Um, there's still huge demand. There's a lot of people who sold up who haven't found anywhere yet. Uh, there's been this supply demand issue. S but price inflation is starting to wane. I think what will really start to crunch down on it is inflation, increased interest rates, cost of living's about to go up. We've got increased national insurance contributions, higher energy bills, higher t council tax bills. It'll be that affordability crunch. And also the fact we're still figuring out how much we need to be in the cities. I suppose it's that all, all those things, you put them together, there's a few hundred pounds here, a few hundred pounds mm. there. Put that together, there's suddenly that extra stretch that you might have gone for for the... Yes, yeah. You know, a bigger house. I don't think it's been, there's not going to be a crash. Yeah. There's, it, I mean, <laughs> so anyone's <laughs> first-time buyers sitting touch, out there... Touch ho whatever hoping, this table's made yeah. out of. M MDF. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, it, it will flatline for yeah. a while, maybe. So that's what Carol's been doing this morning. What have you been doing at the festival, uh, Jack? Oh, well, it was a very exciting night last night. I went into uh, to see Will Young, uh, who, was, who was there in a poncho because 
He's a rock star, right? Or yeah. a pop star, at least. Uh, and um, Nothing else? <laughs> couldn't tell. Like several of the people in our car park at 3 o'clock this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he looked like a wise man at that point, I yeah. expect. But, uh, but yes, oh, he was very excited and very frank about absolutely everything. Um, to the point that I, I'm limited now in what I can tell you about what he said, because uh, a question was asked about Top Gear. Uh, and how he got on with the presenters of that. Uh, and he's, he said that he was, he was all right with some of them, but there was one in particular who he had a real beef with, and uh, he named an episode of The Grand Tour um, where they, uh, they went off on their tour, and one of the presenters was in a Suzuki Vitara, which they dubbed a hairdresser's car, uh, and some of the other presenters sprayed it pink and then forced it so the CD player would only play It's Raining Men. Right. Uh, and he, he felt this is a ridiculous thing to do in this day and age and wanted to take it up with the producers. And he did. Well, he had great plans <laughs> to hang around outside where they worked and then wait for them to come out and then harangue them. Imagine that. Imagine that. Will Young haranguing you when you came out <laughs> of work. Um, <laughs> but he said, uh, he, said he, he, he didn't quite get that together in the end. Yeah. Um, it is interesting with these the the, the 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 sort of whole concept of the festival, where suddenly someone who's got a book out about one thing just ranges across a whole load of of issues, and you suddenly find out what Will Young thinks about an episode of Top Gear. It, well, that's the the best thing about festivals is that it, it, I don't think it's applied to Will Young because he seems like the sort of fearless guy who would say anything anyway. Yeah. Um, but other people, if you had them in a press conference or an, or an interview in the same situation, you ask them a question, they'd be able to dodge it. Yeah. Uh, but if you ask it from the audience, then A, they might not think you're a journalist anyway, and B, they know that the audience is there, they've paid their money for them to say something interesting and if they can't come up with an interesting answer at that point and it's very easy having done these things like you know on the you know on the you, you suddenly you walk out oh probably a lot of people there about 10 minutes in you sort of you're just chatting you're sitting on a lovely big leather sofa you're just you know shooting the breeze with some friends <laughs> and definitely when we, when we did the personality politics one i mean all i actually did was made a couple of jokes which i might have Possibly thought thought better of in hindsight, but you know, I could totally see how you sort of slip into. Where do you stand on the innovation of having to submit your questions electronically? It's a worry. Um, it's good, both good and bad because, on the one hand, you can ask questions anonymously, um, and it, it, then it means that the journalist who's doing it, in, uh, in the case of Will Young. <laughs> Last night, it was a Guardian journalist. Um, was is able to ask your questions on your behalf, which is very nice. But on the other hand, they might not choose them. So if you have a timid <coughs> um, presenter, um, they might say, well, that's a bit of a difficult question. I don't think I want to put my guests in a different comfort zone. But I like what you said about, about feeling too comfortable as a guest and, and, <laughs> and saying things too easily. Because what is, what is the solution to that? Do you have to wear, you know, something very formal, very tight trousers or... or not a poncho. I don't. I don't know what it is. It's just. It, it's just. Ni- everyone seems nice, don't they, Carol? They do. They do. It's very different, isn't it, to, to the party conferences? I've never been to Cheltenham before, yeah. so it is so very much different. Nicer. It is. It is. <laughs> it's gentler, isn't it? Um, and uh, we didn't have any electronic questions in our session, no. but I did notice at the Tory Party conference, I was in a room where there was just a few people. And I was lulled into a false sense of security. <laughs> and then all these questions started coming over because we were on camera and people were sitting at home typing oh. all their questions in. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so in, the, in some of the bigger venues, in the tents and in the Montpellier Gardens, yeah, they sort of put up a web address and you have to go on and put a code in and you can type. So on the one hand, I mean, it's quite good in that you might get a broader selection of people. It's not just the men with the loudest voices sitting in the first three rows to submit questions. However, but then actually, I th- having um, chairs with these, I, I think... 
it's quite handy if someone in the audience wants to ask an awkward question because it's not on me. Whereas mm. if I'm if I'm chairing it, you're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't really want to ask that one. Yeah, uh, it was quite. I think it's quite good if people. But then there's, there's always the risk that somebody puts their hand up and says, "Yes, I've got more of a statement than a question." <laughs> And three, four, five minutes later, they're still going, <laughs> and none of it is about uh, none of it is about anything at all. It reminds me of uh, the, pre- pre- the worst press conferences in the world are at film festivals. Oh, that's um, interesting. Because film journalists are very bad, generally. Uh, the journalists are bad. Yes, right. Um, and uh, and so what you have <laughs> is you have a room full of journalists, and the stars come on stage, uh, and people. There, there's two types of question, really. There's have you got a message for the people of Thessaloniki? <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is that's literally a question that someone has asked. <laughs> and uh, and the other is I thought the, I saw your film, and this is what I thought about it. Yeah. Uh, and is that what you were thinking to the director? And the director will always say no. <laughs> And that's the end of it. And then at the end, the, um, the what it turns out what the journalists are mainly there for is this, the, the, they say, oh, thank you very much. And then all the journalists jump out of their seats. They run to the front and take selfies with the stars in the background. I've only ever been to one of those. It was for the uh, the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland with Helena Bonham Carter. And it was because when I was working on the West Morning News, that they filmed some of it in Cornwall. So I obviously went along hoping to ask the question, what did you think of Cornwall? <laughs> Uh, which I never got to ask. And I thought the whole thing was crazy. You had to be there like hours. Basically said, said nothing. nothing. And then... Uh, sorry, our phone... Our, <laughs> that's I suddenly started hearing myself coming back into my own ears. Then. Yeah, they, they basically said nothing. And then uh, and then you're right. Everyone just got up and left. It was a very, very peculiar... What's the equivalent in, your, in the property world, uh, Carol? I don't think we have an equivalent in the property world. No. I don't think we run around taking selfies of ourselves with developers. <laughs> <laughs> when you were at a party conference, did you not want a shot of you and a housing minister? No. <laughs> good question. Me who, who, but no. Good question. Who, who's the housing minister now? Oh, my God, it's Gove. I mean, everything's Michael Gove, of course. Yes, oh, well, he's of everything. Course yeah, he's yeah, levelling yeah. up, he's housing, he's community. Do you think he's going to do all of those things? Did you get the sense from conference that he was... Because uh, housing is, you know, well, particularly how the, the sort of more junior housing minister traditionally changes once a year. Yes. And then as a result, yeah. nothing happens. I was slightly perturbed by, I think, one of his first speeches was, we're going to build houses in the north on brownfield sites, when possibly we need the houses in the south. But maybe he thinks, build them and they'll come. It's but then everyone bold. will buy them and then realise they still need to go to work in London. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which goes back to the conversation <laughs> we have with it. And what, what does the rest of the day hold for you, Carol? I, I'm, I'm off after this. Are you finished? Yeah, finished. Blimey. I know. Just was... swoop in, swoop out. I know, I know. I think if I come next time, I'll, I'll go and see a lot more, see what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And what about you, Jack? Uh, I'm going to interview Anne Stratton, who gave a talk last night on um, Herbert Ponting, who was the photographer who went with Captain Scott of the Antarctic. Um, and what was interesting, and I'm saying this now like it's all true, but I need to check with Anne that I've read this right, is that he basically invented the selfie. And there's this wow. lovely photograph of him diving off the side of a yacht. Uh, and if you look carefully, you can see in, in his hands that he's putting forward when he's diving, he's got a little stick, and that's tied to a string that's setting off the shutter. Um, and, but better than that is that when he then went to the Antarctic, he taught all the other... Um, people on the expedition how to take photographs because it's not easy there's so much overexposure with too many snow anyway it meant that when you got that very famous photograph of them at the pole all looking disconsolate because amundsen got there first for norway um they that's also done with a string and so therefore he would have adapted the technique that he pioneered in order to enable them to take that very famous photo 
Amazing. Wow. I feel like I've learned something. This yes, is the beauty I mean, of you the might festival. have learned rubbish. I might have overinterpreted. <laughs> but that's that's what I'm aiming Don't for. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about and that. And then readers will be able to see whether or not this article appears tomorrow. <laughs> Jack Mulvin and Carol Lewis, then, of course, you can read them every week in the Times and the Sunday Times. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to the times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Now, not only uh, did we uh, talk about the news and the celebrities who were knocking about, uh, one of the people appearing here at the festival this week was Ed Balls, and he popped into the tent to have a little chat. I don't really know how to introduce you anymore. Because I, I would have said, you know, former Shadow Chancellor, former Treasury Advisor, former Strictly Contestant, documentary maker, and now... Cook, chef. I know. Cookbook author. I've just come from doing online a Bank of England seminar on financial regulation on Zoom before going on to uh, the stage to talk about appetite cooking and recipes. <laughs> and apparently last time I was here, I chaired Norwich City Football Club board. Last time I was at Cheltenham. You've covered so everything. Eclectic. Yeah. Definitely eclectic. Which, which bit do you enjoy the most? I think I enjoy... The variety. I love the fact that um, there's so many different things to do and huge interests. I mean, the work I'm doing on the Holocaust Foundation with Lord Eric Pickles, you know, we will build the most visited Holocaust memorial in the world. And we've got planning permission now. And that's fascinating. But these days I'm in the street and somebody will say, your souffle <laughs> rose really well. I was going to ask about that. What is, if, if somebody stops you in the street or recognises you, what, what is it that they're most excited about? Which, which part of your, your many aspects of your life? I remember talking to Natasha Klepinski about this, <laughs> who said to me, 17 years on from winning Strictly, the first thing most people will say to her is, you were good on Strictly. <laughs> and there's something about that show which means you never really escape. And so... Uh, most often people will yell, keep dancing. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I also still get the, um, you know, I used to hate you. Yeah. And, and now I like you. It's interesting. We did, we did a, uh, an event uh, earlier in the week at Cheltenham about per- personality in politics and the role it plays. And it clearly does play a role in part of the appeal. And your name came up as someone who people didn't like when you were a politician. You were seen as quite serious. There was the, you know, the bruiser and all of that. And then you were only allowed to actually have your own personality when you stopped being a politician. Do you feel like that? I think there's a really thick piece of glass between um, the public and people in politics. And that's partly to do with how we see politicians. It's partly to do with how politicians behave. And it just means you never really see through. It's always refracted and weird and yeah. cloudy. And... Um, I don't think I've really changed. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm bound to have changed a bit, but fundamentally, most people know we were saying... How- the enormous entourage that you've brought with you and the, the demands of the rider for, to come on Times Radio was outrageous. Oh, no. No, and yeah. to be quite honest, Jack Daniels was not what I asked for. <laughs> but you've given me a stress ball, which you've actually... Got, you've got a Times Radio stress ball. And, so a, glass that, water, and a glass of water. Well, what, only because I asked for the water. <laughs> you were sitting here met with a glass of water. That's not water, that's Jack Daniels. Oh, right, fine. <laughs> Uh, but, so you're here at Cheltenham uh, to talk about your book, your I new am. book, Appetite. And I'm doing a discussion with the Prime Minister's sister, Rachel Johnson. There we are. Uh, because, because Rachel and I were both in the final of Celebrity Best Home Cook. Yes. And that's what um, partly spurred this bizarre thing <laughs> of me writing a book with 34 recipes in it. But uh, there we are. But it's part cookbook, part memoir. Yeah, it's not, um, it's not fundamentally a chef cookbook because I'm not really a chef kind of person. Interestingly, I'd done the cooking show and afterwards um, my uh, kind of editor at Simon & Schuster, Holly Harris, said to me, the big bestseller 
after the last pandemic in 1920-21 was Theodore Roosevelt's book called Letters to My Children. And he wrote this very thoughtful, reflective book based on letters he'd written to his children about family and life and what's important. And um, she said, why don't you do something which uses recipes and food to talk about things which really matter to you? And that's what I've done. I'd written um, a recipe book for my daughter when she was 18. There's only two copies of that. We did a photo book with 64 recipes because she wanted that to take out into the world with her. And so I've used those recipes and some of the stories we told on Best Home Cook. And um, Well, that was the thing because whenever all the challenges on Best Home Cook, you, you naturally told a story when they said, what are you doing? You weren't just doing something. You do, you would just say, I always make this at home. This is the thing, you know, this is what I always do at Easter or this is the... the it was clearly, it was a clearly very natural thing. The, the food plays a big part in your story. I think that's right. And, um, but I think it was true for all of us, actually. Yeah. What we discovered was we really cared yeah. because we were on this program and we had to cook something and it was about being a home cook. And so Rachel or me or Ed Byrne, all of us, we were thinking of the recipes which we'd learned or tried from our mums or dads or whatever and then bringing them back to the table. And of course, because it was a home cooking show, it's not like MasterChef. Yeah, it's not all that fussy re- foams and nonsense. But you're suddenly faced <laughs> with this real dilemma, which is, you know, I've done my mum's lasagna and Mary Berry and Angela <laughs> Hartnett is about to to kind of judge it. And if Mary Berry had said, I don't like your mum's lasagna, I would have said, <laughs> I don't care. It's my mum's lasagna. And the thing about being the home cook is you actually care more about whether... It's what they enjoy and what brings the family yeah, yeah. together. And somehow that's... Uh, it turned out my kids, by the way, were totally against me doing uh, Best Home Cook. They said, Strictly was fine, Mum. They said, because <laughs> we knew he couldn't dance. Yeah. Therefore, he was never going to really embarrass himself that much because he was terrible anyway. But with food, they said, he really cares. And if he gets judged <laughs> badly, it could knock him. But this is true. I mean, I've, uh, as long as I've known you, I've known about your, your the Paul Pork. Is it Paul Pork? Paul Pork, yeah. That's in the book. That's Of course, that's in the book. Yeah. Um, and the stories... I was trying to, what's the story about Gord, a phone call with Gordon Brown involving some meat? Oh, my gosh. Well, that was, that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was the, the day Peter Mandelson resigned in December 1998 and Yvette and I were flying out to uh, my parents who lived out in Italy at the time and I'd bought this big joint of sirloin beef to take out and as we were arriving into Heathrow um, Gordon Brown had rang me and said and said Peter Mandelson has resigned and at that moment I suddenly remembered we'd left the beef in Yvette's parents fridge <laughs> an hour away from Heathrow and I said to Yvette where's the beef and Gordon said no he's resigned <laughs> He's resigned. And I then said to Yvette, is it too late? And Gordon said, yes, he has resigned. It is too late. And I then said to Yvette, can we turn back? And Gordon said, there's no turning back now. Uh, that, was a, that, was the, that was the beef moment. Oh, my God. I forgot about that story. I'm, I'm, pleased, I'm pleased to remember. On the subject of Gordon Brown, uh, yep. and obviously Tony Brown, have you been watching the, the BBC documentary? There's a very young, serious chap in glasses. He's always just behind Gordon Brown. I know. I have seen all five of them. Um, we, did, we did hours and hours of interviews, but uh, like a year ago, like a long yeah. time ago. And um, because in the old days, I'd have gone in when I was a minister with like a press officer and a recording thing and recorded yeah. the 11 hours. Whereas... Um, I suddenly thought, I wonder, I wonder what I said. 
<laughs> so you actually watch these five hours with your heart in your mouth, yeah. kind of hoping you've not said something terrible. It's, it's, it's quite, I mean, look, we did look very young. My youngest daughter said, why did nobody in the, in the late um, 1990s wear suits which fitted? And it's true. <laughs> it is Everybody's amazing. got yeah, the yeah, big yeah. balloon-like suits. Yeah. I think for me, the, um, I mean, look, there's lots of kind of issues about um, good governing and you know, the, the Blair-Brown relationship and, you know, did it lead to good outcomes because of, of the creation of that tension or was it, did it lead to kind of errors? I think actually um, the bit I find emotional is seeing Gordon's kids walk down Downing Street at the, um, at the end at of the, the, the end. final yeah, episode, yeah. which has not been on the TV yet. So um, you have to wait and see it. But people will remember that moment. And um, the, it goes back to the thing you said to me a while ago in this, in this conversation that, 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 it was a very, very humanising moment for Gordon. Yeah. He had protected his young son so carefully, rightly in my view, from all the glare of, of, um, and the, all the publicity. But it meant that people saw Gordon the politician. And suddenly there was this amazing human moment giving his sons, you know, the picture for them to remember that, you yeah, know, yeah, actually yeah. our dad was prime minister. Yeah. Look, there we are in Downing Street. Yeah. And uh, finding a way to, in politics, to not... not kind of hang your family out in the public glare um, and not ever look like you're not taking the job seriously, but also show that human beings, you know, we learn, we make mistakes, yeah. we laugh, sometimes we're upset, but that's good. I mean, that, yeah. that's human. Yeah, yeah. Finding a way to show that is very hard it's in really, public yeah, yeah. life, but somehow you need to try. There's also something about looking at it and thinking that whole time just seems a million miles away from politics as it, as it now appears to play out. Not just the fact that Boris Johnson is clearly a very different character to Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, but uh, you know, a sort of level of seriousness, maybe, the, the, you know, the, 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 like you said, the, the, the attention to the, to the way of governing. Um, it just seems like a, just like a, a different age, almost. I mean, the, 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 these days, there's 24-hour news and so many blogs and outlets yeah. and social media, but actually back then... In some ways, the scrutiny was more intense because of the fact that it was kind of more narrowed and yeah. funneled. And you know, if you think of of how the huge difficulties we had, if you think of, you know, I'm sure you, a lot of your listeners won't remember this, but the Bev Hughes resignation, <laughs> because when she was the junior immigration minister, a letter went through her office which she hadn't properly read. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, the yeah, things yeah. people resigned for. Yeah. The Peter Mandelson resignation, in which Tony Blair says he now thinks it was a mistake. I mean, these days, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what it is. I th there's something about the huge noise of politics, which means sometimes it doesn't come back. It has come almost back. the opposite effect. It, Somehow. Maybe 25 years ago, you had intense scrutiny from, what, a dozen newspapers. But at least mm. it was only once a day. Mm. So in the rest of the time, you could probably get on with some stuff. But then there was more of a hold of account. But now there's just so much noise. Would you remember what it was like? I remember going to Labour Party conferences in the early period and somebody would make a mistake on the Today programme. Yeah. And that meant we had three hours to work out what we were going to say on the world at once. Yeah. And, you know, th whereas these days you'd have to... Do it then. There'd be somebody three commenting later, a meet yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Who knows? all forgotten by then. <laughs> but actually the, the, the fact that it didn't move so fast meant that sometimes you know, when, when the collective view settled... 
yeah. it could settle quite decisively. Yeah. And somehow that doesn't quite it seem to doesn't happen. Doesn't seem to happen the same way. Because so, in that three hours, ten other things then happen, and this is sort of never-ending sort of score. You of, can always find things. anybody on social media who's going to agree with you or disagree with you. Yeah. And actually, I think one of the things which really worries me about the nature of modern politics is that if you want to feel good amongst your supporters, you really, really have to hate the other side. <laughs> Yeah. And they're evil, and you have to condemn them. But that, and and that bolsters you within your group. But how does that progress? Yeah. You know, our country or humanity. I mean, actually, agreeing is good. Yeah. You know, a consensus is is how things change. And at the moment, the nature of discourse almost breaks away from the idea that we should ever agree on anything because that would be you know to, to betray. <laughs> I can't agree with them. They're evil. Yeah. You sound, you sound like somebody who probably wouldn't call your opponent scum at Labour Party conference. Um. I wouldn't, although there is a great moment um, in 2001 election in the New Labour documentaries where John Prescott um, punches the guy (laughs) and Tony Blair's line is, John is John. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to say, you know, Angela is Angela. Well, you said it. You said it. That's what I think I would have said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then maybe I'd live through the punch moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I can't have you... I'd mean, uh, love to have you on, talk a bit about politics, talk a bit about food. But, of course, I've got to ask you about Strictly, as every, everyone else would do, uh, um, if they stopped you in the street. Are you watching it? Who do you think is the Ed Balls character of this series? And who do you think is going to win? Look, of course I'm watching it. And, um, you know, I've... And um, I think... This year, they've all been, you know, actually really pretty really good. good. I and wonder the ones, they've all spent lockdown I know. practicing. And the ones you think, they're not going to be that good. They end up yeah. doing much better. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I went up to the top of Kilimanjaro with Dan Walker, who kind of got me through the final two hours to the summit. So, of course, you know, I'm pleased yeah. um, when Dan um, does well. I've always thought rugby players are good. And Ugo Monier, I mean, what an outfit he was yeah, wearing yeah, on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, he's, I mean... In my mind, I can also jump and do a forward roll. <laughs> but catches view was always when I'm, my feet were on the ground. I'm that was to do that now. <laughs> uh, so you know, um, I actually think the one to watch is going to be Rose. Rose Aiding Ellis. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. I mean, the dance she did last week was astonishing, and then to learn that the ballroom was easier for her because she doesn't have to count because she can just feel the music through. Yeah. Giovanni's body, and to have that 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 challenge, and then to do it so effortlessly, yeah. And I think probably um, the you have people who uh, are too good, and then you have people who are clearly just never good, <laughs> and then you have people. And I'm going to put myself in this category, actually, if you don't mind, Matt, who <laughs> who clearly learn and try and get better. Yeah. And, and, it, and, and it is and the journey that that's, all that's, that. what, that's what you enjoy. But what ha- the winner is often the person who comes from you know uh, the uh, a lower base or, or who yeah. doesn't start as a dancer and just emerges and blossoms and end up you th- end up thinking, I mean that's amazing. Yeah. And I have a feeling actually Stacey Dealey did yeah, yeah, a yeah. version of um, that. I think I think Rose looks really good and I think she's going to keep getting better. However, Katu is clear. Olympian, is it? And Petey. <laughs> I mean, he was so undermarked on Saturday. What were they doing? <laughs> I mean, that rumba. It was the one dance I never got to do. And is my, my I impression... Mean, I was basically, Katya and Yvette agreed. Is she and the rumba was hardest... Never, the dance of love was never going to be my dance. Is she the hardest taskmaster of the, of the professionals? She's pretty tough. Yeah. 
I mean, she's very, very. <laughs> That's my impression. She's as a very, and, and I think that she, and, and she, um, but she's also. I mean, when I was dancing with her, I'd never danced before. We went on the Jeremy Vine show in our first week to talk about everything which was going on, and that was the first time that she'd ever done a live radio interview. Oh wow! And she's sort of been kind of kind of learning yeah, and yeah, amassing yeah. and this kind of nurturing that incredible choreographic talent. But I remember one day it was actually the jive, so it was Blackpool week. And she said to me, you must get more bounce. <laughs> and we got to Wednesday, and I said, Katya, Katya, I can't get more bounce. <laughs> and she said, listen to me, she said, I've been dancing since I was seven. That's 20 years. Every day I come into the studio and I practice the same moves because I know after 20 years I can still be better. And you've been doing this for three days. <laughs> so pull your finger out and do it more. And I said, okay. And I did. Amazing, uh, with with the spectacular results. Uh, so you've done you've done Strictly. You've spectacular, done cook- yeah, kind of spectacular a, is the word. A, a nice word. Yeah, I'll take uh, that word. You've done Strictly. You've done a cooking show. What's next in the world of Ed Balls? The the next thing is actually um, uh, quite um, serious. I've got, I've got who do you think you are coming up later, oh, right. in, which is an incredibly emotional thing yeah. to do. I mean, it's an amazing program to to make, and we made that a year and a half ago. But it's um, been it's fascinating and very hard but my big thing coming up i have done a two-hour documentary for the bbc which will be on next month on the crisis in social care where i have gone and immersed myself you know i'm a trained carer now and i've done wow on the front line properly on the front line i've worked for some you know a couple of weeks in care homes and been all over and domiciliary care as well and you know it's not about it's not a panorama view of the issues it starts from the people who live and work and 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 the family members and sees their experience first so that's my next thing incredible but it's varied if nothing else definitely varied (laughs) it's definitely varied and you know on my hands and knees (laughs) at key moments i thought to myself i wanted to be chancellor's (laughs) check how did i end up here Balls there. Right, coming up, we are in Cheltenham, just away from the Literature Festival, of course, just up the road, is GCHQ. So up next, we're going to talk spies. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You a spot? Uh, what if I say no? I don't know. You're sitting on a new, you're sitting on a bench with a newspaper. You could be. Are you waiting to meet another spy? I'm making very complicated numbers to uh, pass on wow. in a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> yes, clearly. Well, not now. You're not going to get the sack now. <laughs> <laughs> is everyone in Cheltenham a spy? They probably think everyone else is a spy. Possibly. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you're double we're bluffing. Talk, we're not allowed to talk about it, are we? You a spy? Um, absolutely not. Although I do have a foreign name, so. Well, that might be enough. You're, here you are, you're sitting on a bench with a copy of the Times. Is this a signal? Are you meeting another spot? Absolutely, yes. I've got, uh, I have to say, climate change to, to whoever comes and sits next to me. Are you a spy? No. Are you sure? Yes. Definitely not a spy? Definitely Is not. everyone in Cheltenham a spy? Uh, there are some. Do you know them? <laughs> no. No. I'm not sure what to make about. What are you about you, sir? Are you a spy? I never have been, no. Never have been? No. I've, I've thought about it, but, uh, but I, it's too dangerous. So that's what happened when I tried to find some spies here in Cheltenham. But why are GCHQ, why is GCHQ uh, here in Cheltenham of all places? Well, I'm joined now by David Abritat, the GCHQ departmental historian, who could tell us why. Hi, David. Hi, Matt. Uh, so I suppose that's the first question, first of all. Give us the history of GCHQ, um, because for a, a big chunk of it, it didn't officially exist. So t- how did it first of all come about? Well, GCHQ um, stems back to an organisation called the Government Code and Cipher School, or GC and CS, which was formed on the 1st of November 1919 from two small crypts analytic um, bureaus that were set up during the First World War. One that was aligned to the Royal Navy or the Admiralty, which was Room 40, and one that was aligned to the, the War Office or the Army, which was MI1B. And at the end of the First World War, those two organisations were put together and formed GCNCS because the government realised they wanted a, a code-breaking or crypt analytic bureau to be formed for uh, peacetime work as well as wartime work. And uh, at what point does that become sort of GCHQ as we know it today? Well, the genesis of GCHQ, it was a term that was actually being used in the Second World War to try, because government code and cipher school sort of says what it is on the tin. (laughs) Uh, So uh, there was a realisation we had to change the name, uh, but that didn't happen officially until April 1946 when uh, we moved out of Bletchley Park into a place called Eastcote in Middlesex. And when did it come to Cheltenham? Well, the story behind coming to Cheltenham uh, really stems back to the Second World War and the uh, Ministry of Works were looking at uh, relocating some of the government departments during the Second World War because of the Blitz. And they uh, moved into the two locations and uh, because of that they put in a huge amount of telecommunications infrastructure in, in Cheltenham. And in 1946, when uh, we quickly outgrew Eastcote, um, we started to uh, reconnoitre other parts of the country where we could relocate to. And one of the areas was Gloucester and Cheltenham. And this 
location was picked because of that telecommunications infrastructure. There was a bit of an urban myth that one of the directors was a, a big racing fan <laughs> and uh, wanted to go to the Gold Cup every year, so uh, I've not found any evidence of that yet. And your role as historian, explain your background, because you're, you're presumably one of the few people who, uh, despite my best efforts to find some spies in Cheltenham, nobody's going to fess up to it. You're one of the few people who, who can. Uh, so what, what describe your role, your time at, at GCHQ? Yep, um, so I'm publicly avowed. Um, we've been on a bit of a transparency journey for the last 20 years to open up a bit more about the work that we do. And uh, my role as the department historian is, is to really convey a lot of our rich, uh, rich history, not just internally into the department, to our staff, to inspire the next generation of, of uh, signals You're intelligence analysts and cybersecurity professionals, but also to educate the public in what we do. Um, so thus, I'm publicly available yeah, yeah. to talk uh, like on shows like this. Yeah. And how, um, how has the work changed? Because presumably it's unrecognisable to what they were doing in 1919. The sort of technology, information, all of that it, it, it must be unrecognisable, or, is it, or maybe, maybe it isn't. Well, it's an interesting question because the organisation, certainly technology has moved forward massively. Uh, we're always on a conveyor belt of change. Change is a constant in our organisation, as it is with many others. Uh, but GCHQ, uh, the current day GCHQ is, is really at the forefront of technology and, and um, things like the National Cybersecurity Centre that was set up in 2016. It's really pioneered a new approach for the world. Uh, a lot of other countries have, have used that template um, to take forward in, in, in their, own, their own countries. And what about what favourite, given that you, you, you have access to the, the rich history of uh, some of presumably you'll never be able to talk about, what, what, what's your favourite sort of nuggets from the history of GCHQ? Um, so at Bletchley Park, there's a, a very famous story of the development of um, the first digital electronic computer, which was called Colossus. It was Colossus for a good reason, because it was a very big machine. <laughs> um, so the, the genesis of that was... Um, 1943, um, they were working on um, a German cipher machine that was being used by the German High Command. They're very different from the Enigma, much more complex. And this machine was carrying very, very top-level strategic um, in intelligence and information um, across occupied Europe. Bletchley needed to crack it, and they did, And but it needed um, a very, very complex machine to help process that, that cipher. And uh, a chap called Dr. Max Newman, who was one of the most eminent mathematicians in the country at the time, he was actually Alan Turing's lecturer in Cambridge, oh, wow. um, put forward a, a specification um, to task um, the uh, Dollis Hill research station for the post office. A chap called Tommy Flowers led that team to develop this, um, this uh, new machine. A lot of that design uh, of four Colossus was still classified until the early 2000s. Oh, wow. Um, we were still using the, the, some of those machines in, in the early 50s, and, 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 and uh, it, it was pioneering. And yeah. um, it's certainly been sort of writ written out of the annals of, of computer history because of the classification issue. So other people have got there uh, publicly... Yeah, but that was going on, on <clears throat> that was going on behind the scenes. And presumably now, the work that that was doing you could do on your phone in terms of the the, the massive development technology. Something that used to fill a room is now technology that everyone's got in their pockets. That's right. Um, we've actually, uh, there's a team of engineers at Bletchley who rebuilt uh, a Colossus. So if, if anyone who goes to, to the uh, Bletchley Park campus, you can actually see a working copy of a Colossus machine, which is, I think is one of the wonders of the world, just to see it and, and see it in, in, in operation. 
I think one of the other famous stories um, really goes back to the early 1970s, and, and we all live online now. We're all doing yeah. uh, online banking and, and shopping on Amazon and everything else. The basis of those secure transactions actually goes back to what they call public key cryptography, which was developed by a chap called James Ellis with a bit of support from two other mathematicians at GCHQ, Clifford Cox and Malcolm Williamson. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. And, it, and again, that was still classified until 1997. So... Um, the, the, you know, the basis of everything we do now as is, is human beings. I mean, that was, that was because that was being used to exchange information mm-hmm. securely between British, the with even the British state. And now that's technology that we use so that I can pay at Amazon. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the underpinning mathematics behind everything we Does do. Did you get like, any money back from that? No. 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 Jeff Bezos owes, owes, owes GCHQ a lot of money, or at least you get some free deliveries. David, it's fascinating speaking to you, and uh, uh, hopefully people have got more of a bit more of an insight. It's such a weird thing that you can't talk about most of what goes on, which is what partly what makes it so fascinating. David, it's really good to speak to you. Thanks very much for joining us Thank on Times much. Radio. Uh, coming up on Times Radio, we will speak to David Omond, a former uh, boss at GCHQ, about his time there and um, the, the threats that we currently face. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Matt Chorley on Times Radio at the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival in the Montpellier Gardens, right in the smack bang centre of Cheltenham. If you travel, what, two and a bit miles up the road, you'll reach the Donut, GCHQ, the, uh, the, the headquarters of our uh, intelligence uh, agency. Um, uh, but what's it really like in there? Obviously, it's a big secret. It's all full of spies doing secretive spy sort of things. But what really goes on inside GCHQ? Well, one man who knows uh, better than most is Sir David Ormond, former uh, director of GCHQ uh, from 1996-1997, then later uh, permanent secretary at the Home Office, uh, then a security intelligence coordinator for the government. And he joins me now. Uh, Hi, David. Hi there. Uh, Now, um, obviously, uh, within the bounds of not getting into any trouble, imagine I did pop up the road, a couple of miles up the road, and went to GCHQ, managed somehow to get in, what would I find? What's it like as a, as a place to work? You'd find the place humming. You'd find a very diverse group of people walking about, talking, arguing. Uh, you'd find a large number of computer screens. And an air of, perhaps I'd describe it as purposeful activity. Because what they're doing is delivering intelligence uh, to the government uh, and to support military operations 24-7. Uh, so you find plenty of lights burning at night as well as during the day. Just to describe, what is the work of GCHQ? It's been distinct from MI5, MI6, James Bond, you know, the, the impression of what spies do. What exactly is it that, that GCHQ are doing? Think of it as a digital agency. So it has two functions. One is to provide intelligence drawn from the digital world. And the other is to secure our cyberspace so that we can communicate with each other, we can do business online, 
and uh, do so safely despite the criminals and hostile states that are trying to attack us. So those are the two parts of the GCHQ mission. And what makes a good GCHQ officer? I, I think I'd say intellectual curiosity. Obviously, there's deep technical ability. There are many very fine mathematicians and uh, IT experts. Uh, but there, is, there are also and linguists. But that sense of curiosity, how do you find out information that other people desperately don't want you to know and may go to extraordinarily violent lengths to stop you acquiring? And those people are the dictators, the autocrats, the terrorists, the criminals, all of those who are actually trying to do us harm. And the only way we can keep ourselves safe is to try and find out what they're up to. And the explosion in digital information, online exchange of of data, whether it's, you know, individuals on their own social media platforms, WhatsApps and, and, and so on, but also every business, every country, every organisation which might want to do us harm exists digitally too, in contrast to, you know, GCHQs are more than 100 years old. Obviously, that wasn't the case in the beginning, and you were trying to get hold probably of, of paper documents uh, back then. Does, is it easier... Uh, for GCHQ now that everything is digital, is it easier to access it? Or is, is, actually, is it a different problem now that there's too much information? There is certainly a problem about filtering and sifting and using the most advanced technology, artificial intelligence algorithms, for example, to go through very large volumes of data and pick out the one or two little pieces of information which will complete the jigsaw puzzle. Uh, its intelligence work is often described as completing a jigsaw puzzle with many pieces uh, from different jigsaws all mixed up together and you've got no picture on the lid to show you what it's supposed to look like. That's the kind of intellectual activity that uh, uh, has always gone on. Uh, in GCHQ uh, and its predecessors, Bletchley Park, for example, during the Second World War. It's in a way because the so much more information is potentially available about, say, a terrorist network, uh, how they're communicating, who's in the network, how they're being financed, and so on. So there is potentially more information that can be of use, but the problem, as always, it's the needle in the haystack, and you have to have <laughs> the haystack before you can find the needle. And I suppose the haystack has just got, got so much bigger. Uh, and what about, and I know all the security agencies have talked about this, trying to it sort of improve the diversity of, of thought as much as anything, different people, different backgrounds, different life experiences, uh, because in any big organisation there's a risk of, of groupthink, and I mean we've even, you know, we've, that word's been banned around a lot the last week or so, in reflect, you know, in reference to the government reaction to and preparedness for uh, a pandemic. How do you... Uh, uh, guard against that in an organisation like, like GCHQ. I was looking at your um, your book, which I know came out last year, How how Spies Think, and you talk in there about how back in the uh, early 1980s, you, 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 it was your job to break the news to uh, Margaret Thatcher that it looked like Argentina was, was preparing to invade the Falklands, and, and part of that was an admission that you hadn't spotted this as happening before, and maybe that was part of groupthink too. 
Yes, I mean, we talk rather casually about groupthink, but what it is, it's a well-established phenomenon that uh, it's quite difficult to stand out against the prevailing trend. And when you've got a group of people who come from a similar background, uh, who share similar experiences, they may look on a problem in a, the same way. And what you want is a diverse group of people who can approach it from different directions. Uh, and you've got her people who have the moral courage to stand up and say, actually, I don't think we're on the right lines here. We've jumped too easily to that conclusion. Why don't we look at it a different way? Uh, it's a continual struggle because groupthink is one of those cognitive errors uh, which you really don't know you're falling into at the time. <laughs> and because it's a sort of subconscious uh, activity, you're not conscious that you're just following the herd because you think you're actually uh, contributing. So th the answer is you've got to make it a team sport because you could, other people will probably spot your cognitive error long before you do. And there are others, and I, in my book, I'm going to talk at the festival uh, about it, how spies think. I go through some of the problems which there are. Mirror imaging is a very common one, where you think that the other person thinks the same way as you do. And anyone who's bought a secondhand car will know that the way the salesperson trying to sell you the car is different from the interest that you have in buying. <laughs> and if you don't recognize that, you're probably not going to have a very successful negotiation. So uh, mirror imaging, uh, perseverance, it's a lovely old-fashioned word, it's a medical word, but actually it means clinging to old ideas long after their sell-by date. And this is something that COVID has exposed because at the start, not a lot was known about this new disease, COVID-19. And as gradually information uh, was gathered by the scientists and analysed, uh, it became clear, for example, that this was very largely an airborne transmission of the disease. And that meant rather different measures should be imposed to try and slow down its spread. And this ability to change your mind sensibly, rationally, on receipt of new information is a, it's a really important part of intelligence work. It's an important part of policy work. But the problem is, of course, if you're a government minister and you're subject to the front pages of the red top newspapers, you're liable to be branded. Well, this is a U-turn. Yeah. It's not a U-turn if it's because actually the facts on the ground have changed. And you also suggest that the prime ministers and ministers would benefit from having some form of psychoanalysis. Yeah, that was said slightly jest, but there's a, a fundamental principle is know yourself. It's one of my principles of intelligence, the, the 10 lessons that I put in my book. It's your own demons that are most likely to mislead you. So you have to understand your strengths and your weaknesses and how it is that you are liable to fall into error or be taken in by deception. And in the intelligence world, there are people out there who are trying to deceive us uh, that some offensive new, some new weapon system uh, has different characteristics from those that it actually has. 
Um, we've seen a lot of deception uh, activity. Uh, for example, in the American elections, the presidential election of 2016, uh, trying to pretend to be something other than it was. So fake websites and so on. Uh, and that sort of uh, information, disinformation activity is still going on. And of course, we've got disinformation. We've got uh, uh, anti-vaxxer movements pushing out material on the internet, which is factually and uh, scientifically untrue. And, and where where would you say are the biggest threats now? What will be dominating the work of, of GCHQ now? Because different days, different news cycles, different people, they might say, well, it's China, it might be Russia, it might be Facebook, it might be WhatsApp encryption. What's the, what's the what would you put at the sort of, if you were in your old job, uh, what would you be putting at the, the sort of the top of your list of concerns? Well, I've got an acronym, CESPIT, crime, espionage, sabotage and subversion, perverting internet technology. So if you're a digital agency like GCHQ, you've really got to try and get ahead of the criminals, uh, the, the risk of disruption from cyber attacks. Ransomware is a real problem now, attacking small companies as well as large ones by criminal groups looking to profit from you know locking up your data and if you don't pay the ransom in bitcoin you lose the data which may mean you lose the business so uh, the latest uh, uh, what i would call digital subversion activities which are not really they're below the threshold of armed attack but russia has been pumping out disinformation into europe and into north america and ways have to be found of combating that. So GCHQ is, I know, now teaming up with uh, defence, with the armed forces, to create a national uh, uh, cyber force, which will go upstream and try and disrupt those who are trying to harm us. I suppose that's a, is that one of the big changes, looking back over sort of your career and even further in terms of the history of GCHQ, the big difference is that uh, if you went back a few decades, actually most people were going about their business un, unimpeded by the sort of things that GCHQ were con concerned about. But because we are now all online, like you're saying, any business could be uh, a target of a ransomware attack. Any individual could be uh, on the receiving end of disinformation or um, uh, deep fakes or, or whatever it might be. And so suddenly we're all slightly more bound up in it than maybe was the case in the past. Yes, I mean, when I joined GCHQ, which is in 1969, the big, the big target was the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact's armed forces. Uh, so you're studying weapon systems, you're studying orders of battle and deployments and things like that. That still goes on, of course, with potentially hostile states. But the, the big change is that we are all, the domestic population, we are all now subject of continuous attack. Sometimes it's criminals, sometimes it's terrorists or people through the activities of uh, 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 hostile states or hostile state, uh, hostile groups. But that sense that in public 
directly that has to be protected is, you know, this is now in, you know, it's in the DNA of GCHQ. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>